Hello everyone, it's May 28th, 2019. So the first 60 Starlink sats have been launched and it's already a little distracting. Turns out these satellites are bright. Also, Hayabusa 2 fails to hit its mark at Ryugu. Turns out asteroids are dark. Let's shed some light on the situation and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 212 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. We certainly got enough news to fill up the show. I don't know how much banter we need. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We don't even need banter at this point. Well, we got a lot of little, not small news items, but things that maybe we couldn't talk about at length. But there are a lot of things that we could talk about. So, uh, yeah, Ben, you said earlier that when it rains, it pours, and uh, mm-hmm. this is, I guess, more on yeah the stormy side of space news, huh? Yeah, it's funny because it's raining outside for me right now, which uh, this is such a wet year. Uh, it hadn't. I don't think it had ever rained this late in the year, uh, the last three years, the last three summers I've gone through. So Mm. it rains and pours figuratively and literally at least where I am. Well, in fact, one thing that I guess um, we're not going to bring up is that NASA has selected a contractor for that first segment of the Lunar Gateway, which, you know, is something. We'll see where that goes. Mm, yeah. And it, it's a company that I've never heard of. What's it called? Do you remember? Yeah, no, I oh, yeah. You, you have heard of them. They used to be Space Systems Laurel, and now they changed their name. Oh, I didn't know they changed their name. Yeah. When did that happen? Okay. I don't know. I, I didn't know it until somebody pointed it out. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I know who that is. It's like hmm. astronautics or something. I mean, not obviously not astronautics, but something like that. Uh, it's called Maxar. Maxar. Uh, so uh, rather Maxar was the parent company. So we, we got bumped up a level. A level. Hmm. Yeah. They, <laughs> Sam says that they got absorbed into the mothership. <laughs> I got to remember Pixar. Ma- Maxar is like Pixar. And now I'll there remember the name. Let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. Do we have any winners this week? Yeah. Yeah. We, we have one full credit winner and two partial credit winners. So the clue from last week, as a reminder, is to overcome a challenge only to get involved in another. And I wanted a, you know, of course I have an event, but I wanted a specific uh, explanation of why this clue worked. And our only winner is Ben Heller. Congratulations. He uh, absolutely guessed uh why this clue applies and then our two partial credit winners uh la loving and chubby turcosi guessed the event but didn't guess the reason so this week in spaceflight history is the 26th of may 1951 it was the birth of sally ride so of course sally ride is the first american woman in space uh, she's also the third uh female astronaut uh overall like the f- the third like female human astronaut, I guess. And uh, so, so Sally Ride went to Stanford. She got a bachelor's in English and physics and then got a master's and PhD in physics also at Stanford. She specialized in astrophysics and free electron lasers, which is always fun to say. Mm-hmm. In 1987, she was selected as part of astronaut group eight, and she went on to fly on STS-7, uh, which was a Challenger mission. Uh, it was the one that launched Annex C2 and Palapa B1. Uh, it the, That mission also launched the shuttle pilot satellite uh, S-Pass, and you know, they did a catch and release. Uh, it was also, I believe, the first shuttle to ever communicate with a TDRS satellite to actually do uh, TDRS downlink. And notably, STS-7 suffered a left bipod ramp shed. So on the external tank, it's covered in foam. And it had, you know, it's mostly uh, sort of that striped surface uh, with, with vertical uh, stripes running down in like a hills and valleys kind of configuration. But there are a couple of places on the external tank where you have um, ir- irregularities. And they're all where you have things 
getting attached to the ET or things going through the the insulation. And so one of the biggest is the bipod up at the top of the ET where um, the nose of the shuttle connects to two struts that then connect to the external tank. Uh, those two struts are configured in sort of a V configuration. They're called the bipod. And so where each of those bipod connect bipod struts connect into the external tank, um, there is sort of a, a foam ramp above it to sort of form like a the a windshield, you know, as as it's flying through the atmosphere. We've got this ramp to uh flow air that get that airflow to ramp up smoothly before it encounters the encounters the bipod. And STS7 lost this big chunk of foam because the entire thing is made of foam. That came off during launch. Uh, foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Then Sally Ride uh, went and flew on STS-41G. Uh, it was another Challenger mission. Uh, it launched an experiment that involves some uh, EVA work called the Orbital Refueling System, the ORS demo. Um, it also launched the Earth Radiation Budget Satellite, ERBS-1, and they used an experiment called Shuttle Imaging Radar B, or SIR-B, so that's uh, that's two missions, and then Sally was scheduled to fly on a third mission, STS-61M. This was going to be a TDRS deployment mission, but it was canceled uh, because of the Challenger disaster. So the clue for this week was to overcome a challenge only to get involved in another, and a couple of people guessed, well, since she flew on two Challenger missions, maybe that's what we're referring to. No, it's it's deeper than that. It's it's <laughs> I'm, I'm more clever than that. So in uh, 1986, the Rogers Commission report was was published, and Sally Ride uh, served on the Rogers Commission. So that was looking into uh, the Challenger disaster. And basically, if you haven't read the the Commission report, it's pretty damning. Um, they called the mission, or they, they called the disaster rooted in history. Like it, it was a long time coming. We saw it coming and we just charged straight towards the cliff edge. They said that not only was the potential for failure well known, but it was excused away as, quote, we got it away with it last time. And, and indeed, shuttle flew six times in a row without the proper waivers being issued during the flight readiness review. In fact, the flight readiness review didn't even, at, at a certain point, they stopped acknowledging the O-rings as an issue and, and didn't even verbally uh, give the go-ahead. They just kind of completely ignored it, um, which is uh, pretty horrible. So the Rogers Commission report had a, a bunch of suggestions, but basically the idea was, let's go back, let's redesign this joint, and while you're redesigning this joint, don't prematurely discount options just because they break your scheduling, because they're too expensive, or because they have reliance on other hardware. Just go figure out how the right way is to do this, and let's make decisions down the line based on which option we want to go with. But let's have all the options sitting in front of us. So, so of course, the SRB was heavily redesigned, um, or, or at least the joints were. So all of these um, restrictions on, you know, what is an acceptable way to handle this hardware got really constricted. I mean, really, really limited. And this was something that we always dealt with. It, it wasn't like we built hardware that could, you know, survive any weather. We had to redesign it and we had to be more careful. So that's that's overcoming a challenge. 
To get involved in another would be if, say, somebody on the Rogers Commission was involved in the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. And in fact, only one person was. So that's where the clue is. Yes, Sally Ride also served in the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, which published its report in 2003. And uh, this report had very, very concise recommendations. Uh, so the first one was foam from the external tank should not break free. And while that seems like it should be pretty obvious, uh, you know, it has a, a lot of implications behind that simple sentence. So let's talk about that foreshadowing from before. The Columbia accident uh, was caused by foam falling off of the ET and damaging heat tiles on the belly of the Columbia orbiter. What part of the foam came off? I never, I didn't know this until today when I was doing research. The bit of foam that came off was the left bipod ramp. It could have been the right bipod ramp. Uh, it's not that one was more dangerous than the other. It just happened to also be the left, uh, the left ramp. So STS-7 had the exact same piece of foam fall off, and it was okay. Just wow, a, a little surreal. <laughs> So the uh, investigation board also uh, recommended better pre-flight pre inspection routines. Um, they wanted to increase the quality of the images uh, of shuttle during ascent and also wall on orbit. And they basically said, we can fly, we, we can accept the risk of flying three more shuttles. After that, we need to get all of this under control. Like that's that's the wiggle room we have is three flights, you know, if, if they're really important. So they said we need to recertify all the shuttle components by 2010. And that was in 2003. They wanted everything uh, recertified. And they also recommended that NASA establish an independent technical engineering authority that was responsible for the technical requirements and all the waivers uh, associated with bypassing a technical requirement. And that, that was basically from top to bottom of SLS, like the entire life cycle of a shuttle needs to be under the jurisdiction of the technical engineering authority. So in the past, uh, I've really, really not wanted to talk about either one of these accidents because uh, they're really traumatic, right? I mean, like th this is a, a really horrible thing. And I thought that this was a really great way to have an opportunity to talk about them because instead of talking about the accidents, this gives us a chance to talk about how we overcame them and what we did to, uh, to prevent them from happening in the future. And then the end of the story uh, is sadly in 2012, Sally Ride passed away um, from pancreatic cancer. And yeah, what a cool astronaut. Everybody who ever worked with Sally Ride was so impressed by her work ethic and her ability to just get things done and to, um, to just be really effective and uh, an asset to NASA and to spaceflight in general. Oh, and let's not breeze past the fact that she is the first known uh, LGBT astronaut. Yeah. That's also worth mentioning because, because <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's an unusual thing. And, and she's so she was so quiet about her personal life that um, we basically didn't find out until a book was written about her. You know, like yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'm trying to remember. Was that after her death? I thought it was after her, her death. Her, her, partner, her biography right? was published after her death, um, and I don't, I don't believe that her partner came out. I, I don't think that they, it was known that they were romantic partners before 
uh, before her death. I, I right. could be wrong, but that's that's what's in my head. Well, that's what I heard, too. Okay. What, then, is our clue for next week? <laughs> I like this one. Next week in 1965, the clue is landing at an altitude of 161,000 kilometers. I really like this clue. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> wow. Hmm. I got nothing. That's a good clue, right? <laughs> that is a good yeah. clue. I'm very curious to see what it's going to turn out to be. Uh, well, I don't know, but if anyone out there thinks they know, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yeah, good luck, you chumps. You're never going to get it. Starlink deployment begins. Well, it has already happened uh, well i mean i mean like starlink the the constellation, constellation. Not, oh the whole yeah. thing yeah yeah okay um yeah so it was a successful launch all 60 satellites apparently it, like it all happened according to plan i didn't watch i already i didn't see i don't know if there's any footage anyway of the actual satellites leaving the payload rack is that something that you saw because i saw them all still attached but i didn't see them yeah detached. there was a little bit of uh feed dropout so the instant where they actually do the release isn't on film or hasn't been released yet, but live we got to see the instant before and then the instant after. Um, so you get to see them all fly out in this, you know, elongated cloud. So as a result of this first deployment, I hadn't thought about it too much, although I think a lot about having a lot of satellites in low Earth orbit, but not what that would be like visually. And we've already gotten a small taste of what that might look like. Mm -hmm. So these Starlink satellites are going to be, just like any other satellite, visible at a certain time of day, depending on exactly where they are and you are. But since there's going to be so many of them, you're pretty much guaranteed to be seeing, I don't know how many, like every dawn and sunset. It's worse than that. Uh, if you're at high latitudes, you are going to see, you know, all of them in the sky lit up all the time during the summers yeah in, in summer uh yeah they're just always gonna be lit up hmm, <laughs> that's so all the time so you mean at night during yeah. the whole night you could yep. always see yep even at midnight um so alex parker on twitter has it has a good uh quote here as a quick check, I just modeled 12,000 copies of the typical orbits of Starlink satellites launched this week at midsummer night at midsummer midnight in Seattle. I estimate about 500 of them will both be above the horizon and directly illuminated by the sun. Yeah, the higher the higher the latitude you go, the sun doesn't dive so far below the horizon after it sets. Mm -hmm. And so that's why even when it's at its lowest point, it can still, you know, the sunlight can still reach Leo. And that's why summer is mm -hmm. the kind of time that they're up all night long, potentially, depending on your latitude. Well, it's a good thing that uh, astronomers uh, mostly like working in the winter when it's really, really cold at night, right? Yeah, and the nights are longer. But unfortunately, you know, with the sun, you know, and the Earth going around it, there's only some objects you can see during the summertime. And yeah. so I was trying to think of that as a silver lining, which is, yeah, the winter yeah. nights are your long evenings. And so that's always kind of the best conditions. But if you've got something that you can only see in the northern hemisphere during summer, yeah, you're kind of potentially hosed. I, I definitely say that with sort of an exasperation. It's, uh, mm. you know, small comfort. So so let's let's talk about like the downer stuff before we start talking about the cool stuff. I like that approach. <laughs> um, uh, another really good quote um, from Twitter, and all this will be linked in the show notes, uh, from C's Bassa, 
uh, an astronomer in the Netherlands. Uh, they said uh, for locations at lower latitudes, the situation is only slightly better at 34 degrees latitude, say Los Angeles, up to 10 Starlink satellites will be a vis- will be visible during twilight. At those latitudes, the satellites will be invisible for only four hours in a typical summer's night. And what's worse is that uh, this is not uh, a surprise. Astronomers for a long time have been saying, hey, guys, sa- satellite Internet is really cool. And, and that's that's great. But uh, what about the fact that we're not going to be able to see the stars? Um, and there's been some really philosophical discussions on Twitter that I'm, I'm not used to seeing in space Twitter. Um, people saying things like, well, hey, uh, I think this is Doug Ellison actually said the night sky is is a right of all humanity. And it's built into our genetics to look up at the stars and marvel. And not only are humans affected, but all of these animals that actually like literally navigate using the stars, uh, it's their right to have the stars available. And, you know, if you look up into the sky and there are 500 dots zipping around at any given moment, um, that dramatically decreases uh, your view of the stars. And the implications for that are, are both scientific, but also philosophical. Now, Personally, I appreciate that, but I really want to see it as well. The only thing is that I'm pretty sure that after seeing it for a couple of years, I'm going to be sick of it. That's um, exactly I, what I was thinking. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who are like, oh, well, th- you know, this is a totally different kind of marvel. This is marveling at our accomplishments. And it's like, yes, for for the first couple of weeks. And then it's going to get real old. Yeah. When and, I take, and, no, I was going to say, when I take students to the, uh, to the observatory to just look at the night sky. I love catching satellites, you know, mm-hmm. while they're kind of doing their observations, I'm just, my head is yeah. right up and I'm just scanning the sky. Cause you yeah. know, you can catch a couple during the night and it's exciting. They think it's exciting. It's a really neat thing. Well, especially when they flash, that's always really cool. Yes. Yeah. Iridium flares. Are wonderful. That I think is not intrusive enough to really spoil the skies in the way that we're saying, right? Cause there's, there's, you know, the attitude that some people have that, Oh no, this isn't going to really spoil the night sky. It's just going to kind of be like airplanes are kind of whizzing around during the day. You've got a similar thing at night. And plus we already have all these satellites up there and this, that, and the other thing, but having, yeah, this ubiquitous train of satellites, no matter kind of where you are, uh, worse at higher latitudes and even at lower latitudes, like that LA uh, tweet mm-hmm. or the tweet about Los Angeles, only four hours in a typical summer's night. Most people aren't really up at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., yep. you know, sky gazing. Most of the public, when you look at, you know, something in the sky, you're seeing it in the early evening. So I wonder, though, this is not good for astronomers, but for the general public, you can still see the night sky just fine, right? You're just seeing some extra satellites in orbit, right? Like, well, is it really that big of a deal? It, it's not just distracting, but it actually contributes to light pollution. So it's going to be harder to see some of the dimmer objects in the sky. Yeah, you know, Venus, <laughs> Venus is going to outshine uh any Starlink satellite. Jupiter? Yeah, you're still going to be at Mars? Sure. But what about uh, the Andromeda galaxy? Right now, you can see that with your naked eye if it's really dark out. After Starlink and OneWeb and all these other things are up, I don't know if you're going to be able to see Andromeda anymore. I've never seen Andromeda with my naked eye, so... It, it just... I've never been anywhere that dark. Uh, it, I mean, it looks like a fuzzy little... <laughs> nothing. Because they'll always quote but, it as being four full moons across... 
but that's if you yeah. had like Hubble's eyes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still, I mean, even if it's a fuzzy thing, that's a fuzzy thing. That's what two and a half million light years away that you're just eyeballing. It's an, in- mm-hmm. at a yeah, dark it's site. an yeah. entire galaxy that you can see with your naked eye. It doesn't matter if it's not incredibly impressive. Orion's Nebula, you can see that with your naked eye. You can see a stellar nursery. It's tiny. You can't really make out the colors, but you can see a bit of fuzz. And that's super important. And and I say this as, as a science educator. Um, in, in college, I worked in my school's uh, stellar observatory. And I know firsthand, I mean, you can, you can know this secondhand really easily just by going on, on Twitter and reading people's accounts. But I know firsthand what a big deal it makes for somebody to be able to look up into the sky and see something amazing. Like having skeptical college kids who are, are taking an astronomy class as a gen ed and they really don't care and they're just going up you know, late at night when they would rather be doing anything else, uh, going up onto a, a dark roof just to check off some items on their list. They're going to do it once and they're never going to come back. And, and having that cynicism, seeing it and just saying, okay, great. I, I'm not going to do your homework for you, but before you start on your homework, <laughs> here's a telescope that lets you look at the moon with a really big optical uh, it's going to cover your entire eye. Or here's Saturn. Look, you can see its rings. Or here's the Orion Nebula. You can see stars being born. And watching the attitude change where some somebody's entire conception of the galaxy, well, the, the universe, right? The, their entire understanding of how this whole world works changes in just an instant. And watching them go into that dumbfounded reverie <laughs> where they just gaze into the telescope and then ask what else can i look at that's so important and to to begin to pull that away from people i think it's a a shame i mean i I really think that that diminishes and yeah of course you can get around it because you just pull out a telescope and you know things are a little better but seriously to not be able to see andromeda from anywhere on on earth well one thing i mean i i agree about i i think it's a tragedy to be honest if could you imagine maybe 10 years or 20 years having to like talk to people like yeah so you don't know what it was like but back when i was a kid or even as an adult i was able to look at a unspoiled night sky and actually see all the static stars fixed yeah. in there and it does well well so it, it'll be a little better than that it'll be hey you think this is cool you should have been around you know in the early the early 2000s because then we could see a lot more because people are still going to be Wow, people are still gonna love to look up and see all those things. Mm. But it's gonna be like you're you're missing just a little bit. Although there there's one thing though I think that's worth pointing out is at least being at Leo is what these objects obscure will be different for different observers. Right? Sure. Yeah. Parallax. So it's not as though this is gonna ruin Yeah, this isn't putting an ad on the moon. Exactly, exactly. But it's still, <laughs> but for yeah, depending on where you are though, certain stretches the sky will be essentially relentlessly obscured yeah it's going to be kind of interesting because this this is going to happen i can't imagine uh starlink one web and facebook or whatever are going to be able to be stopped so in the future can you imagine dark sky tours where they're like okay we're going down to uh the opposite or you know we're going down to the equator and we're going to go way out into the ocean there's this island like maybe you know ascension island or something and we're just going to go just to see how dark the sky used to be, you know, like, 
That'd be pretty cool. So do you not think that maybe it, you think it might be possible to make these things a little bit less reflective? That's one idea, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, how feasible that, that is. that's a really good point, David. And you know, we are always getting better batteries. We're getting better solar panels. Uh, our electronics are are getting lower powered. Although you know, with a communication satellite, there there is a basic physics threshold that you have to get over. Um, so I, I mean, maybe like maybe one day you know they'll all fly with RTGs or something, um, and they can be pretty small. Or you know, maybe we'll we'll end up stealthing them and and spraying them with Vanta Black <laughs> or something. But. I don't know. Yeah, that is a really good point, David. It might be possible. I, I don't know because, yeah, like you said, there's some pretty difficult physics to address. But if not, then, yeah, we just have to, like, deal with looking at all these satellites all the time. It's sort of a good problem to have in that this is for stargazers who see the night sky, like, regularly. Like me, I don't have the opportunity too much because I'm like always near light pollution because I, I don't live out in the desert. <laughs> um, and that's like, you know, the best place to look at the stars. So I can certainly see how that would be bad for those people. But um, for me, I think it would just not make much of a difference. Although, and yeah, it would be kind of neat to see, but you're probably right in that it would, the novelty of that would wear off within probably less than a couple of years. Like it would probably be two or three months. And then I'm like, okay, I'm tired of looking at this. Mm. So. Well, okay, so let, let's talk about the novelty. Are you guys ready to talk about that? Yeah. Sure. I wish I could see, uh, I wish I had a good pass of the Starlink train because it looks really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> 60 satellites. And, and what's really cool is it's actually 61 satellites because there's also the second stage. And the second stage is tumbling already. So the, the second stage flashes. So you have this long chain of 60 satellites and then a flashing caboose. That's cool. I really want to see these things before they spread out too far. And the the videos that have popped up online are are really cool. I'm just kind of surprised that we haven't seen uh, very many UFO reports yet, or at least at least mm-hmm. I haven't. Yeah, so there's a website called, and it's on the SpaceX subreddit, um, and there's a link to a website called orbitalpredictor.com, and so that can give you some idea of where these might be. Huh. Now, do you know how far they're going to spread out? Because I'm not sure on what their final orbit is supposed to be for each of them, like if they're going to be. I doubt it, but they could just all stay just, you know, kind of in that current configuration I, because I, no. there is going to be another 12,000. Yeah, no, no, no. That's, that's way, way, way too close. I I think that these six. Well, how close are they right now? Well, I mean, that's kind of a moving target because at one point they were all in contact with each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but right now, as far as what I've seen, they do not yet span the entire night sky. Like they don't go horizon. Well, that's what I'm. Right. But that's kind of what I was wondering um, why. I mean, I mean it, that would probably be the best way to deploy them because they want to start testing, you know, this constellation as soon as possible. But um, I mean, they might, I mean, just 60 satellites, given that there's going to be some 12,000 of them. I mean, that might be about the distance is kind of like what you saw in that one tracking. No, you know, um, no, no. Because because of all the orbital planes, um, if you look at well, yeah, and and that includes orbital planes. So you put a you know sixty more. They're, they're, planes, they're going to be like a, a minute behind each other or something. Um, like on, on that scale, right now they're under a second behind each other. So yeah, they're they're definitely gonna they're definitely gonna spread out. Are they really though? Yes. How do you know that? Because I couldn't tell by looking at it. Then again, I don't know if if they're a minute or five minutes or an hour. I mean, and well, not an hour, but. I just see these little lights in the sky, so I, I don't have any frame of reference for knowing how far apart they are. But I thought that they were further apart than that. Well, well, think about it this way. They have 360 degrees to spread out into in this orbital plane. If there are 60 of them, that means that they're going to be, what, six degrees apart um, if they're evenly spread. 
and and how many degrees of an orbit do we actually see in the sky? I mean, it's it's really small. Um, it's like what ten degrees or something. Um, just just when they're at this altitude. Um, so so right now they when I say seconds apart, I mean I mean like time, like the time for for one to pass an object, you know, a theoretical point in space, and then the next one to pass. They're they're just seconds apart um, because you know they all fit in the in between the horizons. Mm-hmm. And as they as they spread out, it's you know it's going to be one and then another and then another. But then of course, as the Earth is rotating, obviously the the path that they're on will fl- you know move across the sky. But yeah, they're they're definitely going to spread out more than this. I believe that their intention is to spread them out pretty evenly along their orbit. Okay, okay, I didn't yeah. know that. That seems like the best way to start testing as soon as possible because you'll yeah. always have an uplink to at least like a couple. Right. Yeah, so. and that is much more. That that's so much closer to what their final configuration will be is is not mm-hmm. you know within touching distance pretty much. So so touching distance is kind of an interesting lead in. So David, you said that you weren't sure if you'd actually see them uh, get deployed from the second stage. I mean, I watched the video and then yeah. 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 So so did you did you notice that they all got released at once? I would have to go back and watch it because I don't remember, okay. but I think that yeah they they all get released at once and then like nothing happens right at first because they have yeah. to slowly drift apart yeah so you can't really tell so the really cool thing that they did was they spun up the second stage and then they released them all at once so instead of spitting them out one at a time pew 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 and shooting them in the same direction by spinning the the second stage and then releasing them all at once they all have angular momentum that gets basically broken up into each individual one of them so they all drift apart from each other but then they also all rotate because they're they have that uh, momentum so they all kind of like fan out almost like a deck of cards you know that that trick that uh, card magicians will do where they hold the deck in their hand and then smooth you know spread it out with their other hand mm-hmm. and everything kind of mm-hmm. smears that's exactly what they did on orbit with as far as i know no collisions i, I think that that's uh, pretty safe to say <laughs> and it looks really good watching that footage i didn't watch it live i wish i i wish i would have been able to but watching that footage is really cool and i'm looking forward to getting better footage of this deployment in future launches because it looks really nice so elon says that these things will be able to do automatic avoidance maneuvers and everybody is scratching their heads (laughs) because that's ridiculous and and i think it really comes down to we don't know exactly what he's talking about how do you define auto avoidance? So pretty early on, it was made clear that they aren't going to be doing their own sensing. They'll be taking, you know, sensing data from the ground. But are they making decisions? Like, is the silicon in low Earth orbit going to be making the decisions whether to do an avoidance maneuver? Um, is is the silicon on the ground going to be making that decision? Just saying, hey, you need to move. And then the silicon in the sky uh, plots its own actual maneuvers like what the heck is going on and how come we haven't nicknamed some avoidance tracking system perambulator because like that needs to happen what's the perambulator i'm not oh from uh seven eves oh yeah i haven't read that yet oh it's a it's a really good audiobook you should go listen to the audiobook seven eves oh neither of you two no oh shame on you listen to audiobooks yeah (laughs) it's okay i didn't listen to it till like last year but it is really really good it's uh neil stevenson and uh there are two halves the first half is 
very near future, like in the next 10 years. And the second half is distant future. And I, I don't love the second half as much as the first half, but I've listened to the book like three times. And each time the first half has made me cry. Like, you know, I'm driving, you know, on, on like a two hour drive and I'm just like wiping tears away because <laughs> it's very, very emotional for me. Emotions in space always get me. So I got the free time now. So hopefully <laughs> I still want to read Artemis. That's how far behind I am on Ooh, Artemis is all stuff. Artemis is a quick read. That, that one's going to be easy. So um, I'm not sure yeah, exactly how the collision avoidance system will work, except that just as you said, it'll be from information tracked on the ground. And then from there, some sort of automation happens. And yeah, I'm not sure which software makes the decision. But it, I mean, the whole point of it being automated is that no human has to be in that loop. So Right. But, but Elon specifically said that the satellites themselves could make these decisions. And that just, that seems weird. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> yeah, well, it might. Well, he's just being Elon and making it sound provocative. I'm sure he'll amend yeah. that and say, well, really, it's not yeah. the satellite making the yeah. decision. Uh -huh. right. Yeah, I agree with you. There's um, a really interesting quote from Glenn Peterson, and he's a researcher at the Aerospace Corporation, and he did some calculations. And apparently, if all of these mega constellations in what it's like three or four at this point, but if they're all put into orbit, then there would be 67,300 alerts generated each year. Yikes. And I'm assuming that these are the alerts that currently we get from uh, the current institutions that actually, you know, track these things and um, like issue the notices and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Which is wow. the Air Force's um, tracking. Yeah. All that ground tracking. So that's a lot. So you can quickly see how it's absolutely necessary for this to be automated. So I don't think that there's any dispute there. Like this is something that does have to happen. You do need to have some system in place that can make these decisions because people can't do it. Yeah. At least I don't think so. If I did the math right, that's an alert every eight minutes on average. Yeah. Yikes. That That's like traffic control, you know, except worse. Way worse. Way, uh, in way fact, it worse. is a kind of traffic control. <laughs> It is traffic control. It's just traffic control for space. And this is only including, I mean, even as long-term as we're thinking, that's still uh, near-term on, like, human civilization scales too, right? This is just yeah. the mega constellations that are currently planned to be deployed, let mm -hmm. alone what things would be like in 50, 60, 100 years from now. But who knows? Maybe technology will improve at that point that we could it'd be a different yeah. civilization problems like that. I, I guarantee you this problem has been faced in the past somewhere in the in the universe, maybe even somewhere in our galaxy. And it's it's been overcome and it's not been overcome multiple times. And we're just going to have to figure out what we're going to do about it. Maybe in the future, you can actually reduce the number of satellites by having much, much larger platforms that can serve like multiple purposes or something like that, you know, yeah. because this is just a whole bunch of little satellites and maybe you have maybe a couple thousand at most large ones that kind of do everything you know like that would kind of be ideal just, just wait because people are already gonna like when when you see satellites in the night sky every single night you know multiple satellites at once people are gonna say oh well like conspiracy theories are gonna go crazy and oh, yeah. you know we'll be able to say mm -hmm. well well there aren't any cameras on starlings and oh no of course there are like you're such a sheep you know <laughs> My my feelings tell me so. So it just it's gonna get bad. Yeah, you bring up a good point. The conspiracy theories. I mean, if you thought contrails were bad, this yeah. is gonna be a yep. hundred times worse. Yeah, somebody's gonna see a long cirrus cloud that appears close enough to a satellite. They're gonna say, "Oh, well, these satellites are creating their own chemtrails." And yeah, you know what's gonna happen. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. Looking forward to it. Translating over to a second story we have today: a Hayabusa two aborts second marker deployment. So this is when the Hayabusa spacecraft 
sort of like marks a landing site with a little metallic ball. Did I get that right, Dennis? Yeah, I think it, I think it's almost more like a. I wanted to say I think I called it a beanbag last time. Yeah, that actually makes more sense mm. because we're talking about very low gravity, but mm. it's something that's highly reflective. Yeah, so. e- exactly, exactly. Yeah, so right, it, a couple weeks ago did its artificial crater mission. It dropped its large copper element, went and hid on the other side after tossing a camera to watch, you know, the uh, <laughs> plume and uh, anthropomorphization is wonderful. And yeah, that that went very well. Uh, and so it's got a nice little new crater there, S01. Uh, showing some subsurface material and the idea is okay the next step is to sample it now originally right there were going to be three samplings they already did one they canceled the second and so this is the final of the three samplings uh, now it's the final of the two samplings and as they're you know prepping like you said they right they got to drop the little marker to help with navigation and it's descending right its home position is uh two kilometers i think and so it's you know heading towards the asteroid and it gets really close 50 meters above the surface and it's taken pictures the whole time so there's new images you know showing its little tie fighter looking shadow and everything and unfortunately uh for whatever reason at 50 meters an automatic abort triggered and it just whoop went right back to the home position no problem nothing was there was no damage or issues or anything but it was unable to go and drop the marker so they're trying to figure out exactly what happened maybe they know at this point and we just haven't heard yet because i've gotten a sense at least from their if, if you're interested in hayabusa 2 news my tip is to follow their twitter and not go to their website because their website is usually like two months behind mm-hmm. or something really mm-hmm. egregious i think <laughs> but um yeah. yeah so unfortunately the time is ticking ryugu is heading towards perihelion and so the spacecraft can't get too close to this hotter radiating body and so they have one and a half months to figure out what was wrong and fix it and actually you know drop your marker and then prepare for the actual touchdown and sampling and they might just cancel it if they think that they would be rushing it because at the end of the day right the sample return is the main part of this mission and it could still be a failure in that regard so it might not be worth risking it if you lose your one sample to try to get a second one but you know they had an abort last september at a much higher altitude i think it was 600 meters in that case and they were able to figure out what was going on it had to deal with the uh, had to do with the lidar and so they made some tweaks to their operation and they were able to do a successful sampling so the question is whether or not they'll be able to pull it off i certainly hope they will but uh yeah we don't know because the subsurface is just such a different thing than sampling the surface and it'd be a real shame to go from three samplings to two to just one especially if you don't get the subsurface and so you just made a nice big crater for no reason yeah i did not know before this that the way that it descends is that it first has to drop that marker that's something that i i didn't know i thought that it just you know made a slow descent but it's basically just because it's such a dark rock that it just can't pick up any lidar mm-hmm. reflection right yeah or I, or i guess radar first or then lidar or i think it's lidar I believe so. Yeah, and from the first sampling, I remember pointing out how cool it was because these these markers are kind of a grayish color. And when you, if you look back at the first sampling images, the marker is overexposed and saturated, and it's just like it's it's completely white on the imaging, and that just shows how much they have to uh, expose to get it to look the grayish color that we keep seeing. Yeah. In reality, it's a much it's black essentially. It's like landing on a charcoal briquette. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, 
But I guess, you know, if we want to end on a more positive note, or I don't know if we need to end, but yeah, uh, it still does have another deployment. We've got yeah. another uh, uh, Minerva. Uh, is it Minerva or Minerva, right? Oof. Well, uh... It's got another little hopper to drop. Yeah, Minerva. Yeah, it, it had this. It's it still is a pretty rough naming scheme. It had the Minerva Two One A and the Minerva Two One B. Those were the Hibo and or Hibu and Owl ones that it dropped last year. Then it dropped Mascot, which was the German French one, and now it's got Minerva Two Two, uh, which is going to drop another one that's going to be zooting around or not zooting around, hopping around. I guess same kind. Uh, of... No, let's go with zoot. Zoot, yeah. <laughs> Very slow motion zoop. Right. <laughs> we still have that to look forward to. And then, yeah. and if anyone's wondering, like, does that mean it has an, a month and a half before it has to, like, flee the system entirely? And it's, no, it, it's it's far enough away from the asteroid at, you know, two kilometers that it doesn't have to worry about the infrared, you know, damaging the spacecraft. So it's not going to leave until the end of the year. So this spacecraft can withstand direct sunlight, but it cannot withstand the infrared that's like coming back off of the asteroid. Yeah. I mean, think about it, right? Like if, if it's a dark object, that means it's absorbing by far probably 90% of the sunlight reaching it and then rereading mm-hmm. that as infrared. So it's probably a very warm source by spacecraft standards. Mm-hmm. And also, if you the closer you get to it, the bigger it appears to be, right? The, the more space it takes up in your sky which means that you're getting heating from a bunch of different angles. Mm-hmm. All right, short and sweet. This week we got four of them, so one more than usual. And what's our first one, Dennis? Student-built rocket reaches space. An undergraduate research group at the University of Southern California successfully launched the first entirely student-built rocket to reach space. Based on post-launch modeling, the group concluded that their Traveler 4 rocket passed the Kármán line with 90% confidence. Congratulations to the team for this impressive achievement. That's really cool. That's <laughs> impressive, yeah. Uh, next, OSIRIS-REx Citizen Science. So now that OSIRIS-REx's survey of the asteroid Bennu has uncovered a rougher surface than anticipated, the mission has invited the public to use their new website to count boulders in an effort to generate a hazard map and expedite the sample selection process. Visit Bennu.CosmoQuest.org if you'd like to participate. Or just Google it, right? <laughs> or just Google um, it. <laughs> Next, Vulcan passes its critical design review. ULA's Vulcan rocket has completed its system-level critical design review. This is the final review for the overall design of the launch vehicle. Much of the hardware used in the final design includes components from ULA's Atlas V and Delta II rockets, such as the Atlas V's payload fairing, upper stage engines, solid rocket motors, and avionics. Flight hardware is already being built at ULA's facility in Decatur, Alabama, keeping completion of the Vulcan on schedule for 2021. But that's that might slip. And for- Fourthly, Long March 4 suffers a failure. A Long March 4 that was launched this past Wednesday failed to deliver its payload to orbit. Suspicions of a failure began when there was no official announcement of a successful launch immediately afterwards. More than 12 hours passed with no further update on the launch before the state-run Xinhua News confirmed that there was an issue with the rocket's third stage and that the payload, a Yaogan 33 satellite, did not reach orbit. Okay, so no questions, comments, or corrections this week, so we're just going to move on to upcoming spaceflight events, and there's barely any of those either. We just got one launch. We got the one. Yeah, so our one launch will be on May 30th. Uh, This is a Proton-M with a Breeze-M upper stage, which will be taking uh, the Yamal-601 satellite directly to geostationary orbit. Um, Yamal-601 being a uh, communications satellite Gazprom space systems that'll be replacing an earlier uh, satellite in the constellation. 
So the launch again will be taking place on May 30th at 1742 UTC with an instantaneous window and launching from uh, Baikonur's uh, Site 200 uh, Launchpad 39. All right, and that is your upcoming spaceflight event. That was the one upcoming spaceflight event. All right, <laughs> let's uh, do orbit then, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at orbitalmechanics.com so that's all and we will see you next week on orbit until then later bye everybody see you